in newborns, their brain growth increased by 1% each day, day yeah. immediately after birth until about three months of age. And so if you quantify that, that's going from a brain that's about 33% of adult size early on to a brain that's 55% of adult size by three months of age. And so that's pretty crazy to think that, that that happens so rapidly. Hi there, welcome to another episode of Shift with Shibra. I'm your host, Shibra Venetti, and I am a child and adult sleep consultant. I'm also a baby science program instructor and an Akashic Light Healing practitioner. And on today's episode, we are talking about children's sleep. So if you have not seen our episode on adult sleep with Dr. Etty Ben-Simon from UC Berkeley, then please go and check that out. And if you are interested about children's sleep, then today's episode is what you'll want to listen into. So we have two researchers for pediatric sleep uh, who are based at the SOM Neuro Lab at the University of Massachusetts at Hearst. And we have Gina Mason, PhD, and we have Sana Lokanwella. And Gina Mason and Sana Lokanwella are basically two researchers that are studying pediatric sleep, especially in regards to napping and cognitive memory development. And Gina is mainly interested in social and physiological underpinnings of early attention and memory development. And her work is currently working with nine-month-olds to 15-month-olds in the sleep lab. And we have Sana, who is looking into the role of sleep on memory consolidation and development in young children, and particularly the ages of three to five. So I'm very excited for them to come on today, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you like today's episode, please don't forget to like the episode, subscribe to our channel, click the little bell to get the notifications every time we drop a new episode. We drop an episode every Monday. And if you have suggestions for further episodes, do write in to us as well. If you wanted to get in touch with these ladies, their contact information will be listed below. If you have any questions, of course, please write into us. And I hope you enjoy today's content. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about pediatric sleep. I'm very, very excited, as you know, because this is my jam. This is what I do. But it's really, really great to hear it from the source. And we recently had a conversation on adult sleep but I wanted to have one specifically on pediatric sleep because we know, at least we know, that there's slightly some differences as the baby is growing and then gets to the adult sleep sort of stages. So would you, maybe we'll start with Gina and then we'll go with Sana, but would you be able to just tell a little bit about your individual backgrounds on how you became sleep researchers and why are you interested and what current research scope right now? Sure, yeah. So my foray into sleep research actually started fairly early on in my education. So I, as an undergraduate, worked in a research laboratory in Arizona at the University of Arizona. It's now called the Memory Development and Disorders Lab with Dr. Jamie Edgen and Lynn Nadell. And at the time, it was known as the Down Syndrome Research Group. But in that research group, there was a lot of research surrounding sleep apnea in Down syndrome in both children and adults because in Down syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea is very common. Right. And so when I joined the lab, that was a major focus was, was obstructive sleep apnea. And sleep in general <laughs> is this really interesting phenomenon because it happens, it's very highly evolutionarily conserved. 
it happens across species and we do it every night as humans, we, <laughs> we sleep and we spend about a third of our lives asleep. And so it's just this, it's really this basic human and non-human animal necessity and why that is, is really fascinating. But in terms of why I started with development, so on a personal note, I started, my interest in development in particular started um, when I was 10 years old and my younger sister was born. And I grew up with, with this younger sister. Um, <laughs> it was really awesome to see her just develop and just see, you know, how rapidly she developed from infancy through early adolescence. And now she is a 21 year old adult, which is crazy. So going from the interest in development initially is when I started my undergraduate studies and research into sleep with a neurodevelopmental condition and then went on from there into graduate school and then my postdoc in sleep research. So in graduate school, I didn't actually study sleep. I studied parent-infant interactions and I studied comparative vocal learning in, in human infants. And then also our lab studied infant songbirds and how songbirds oh, wow. learn to sing from their parents as well. But yeah, going into my postdoc, I wanted to focus again on sleep because I missed conducting the sleep research. Really? <laughs> so sorry if that was a little bit jumbled. I know there are a lot of different parts there. So why did you get interested in sleep then? What nailed, what pinned you there? I think because, as I mentioned, it it is this interesting, very ubiquitous phenomenon that happens across humans and non-human animals. It's relevant to neurodevelopmental conditions. So not just in Down syndrome, but in other neurodevelopmental conditions, sleep is often disturbed. And so Sleep is also something that is often targeted for interventions, both in typical humans with sleep disorders and with individuals with neurodevelopmental conditions who also, on top of their primary symptoms, have these sleep disturbances. And so, yeah, I thought it was a really great target for intervention, as well as just a really interesting ubiquitous phenomenon in general across species. And what's your current area of research at the moment? Oh, yes. My current area of research is I study sleep in infancy and early childhood, and we are particularly studying the importance of daytime napping for memory consolidation in both infants and children. But we do also, we are starting some other projects looking into the effects of certain environmental influences on sleep quality. So for example, I'm writing up a paper right now looking at co-sleeping in early childhood, so in preschool age children, and its prevalence in a U.S. sample here in Western Massachusetts, and also how that relates to differences in sleep durations and sleep quality in children. And then for infancy, we have a light exposure study where we're looking at how natural variation in light exposure at ages 9 and 12 months may relate to the faster adoption of single, like a one nap a day strategy by 15 months of age. So we're just looking at how differences in light exposure early on basically relates to the development of different sleep patterns at 15 months, and then how it also relates to concurrent sleep quality at those ages, so at 9 and 12 months as well. Amazing. Okay, well, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Gina. Okay, and Sana, please tell us about you. Yes, so I, I'm Sana, 
And I happened upon sleep completely by chance, by wonderful chance, I'd say. I was in my undergraduate at Baylor University, and I, for the longest time, had the absolute worst sleep habits. But being young and being just feeling like I'm immortal, I completely just disregarded sleep as a prominent health factor. So when we think about health, we think about food and water and exercise, but sleep, which really should be part of this pillar, it was not even on my radar. And I just knew going into college, in just my first couple years in college, I had the absolute worst sleep. I would cycle in and out of all-nighters and just, again, feeling still inevitable, like, oh, even though I slept 30 minutes, I'm going to be completely fine. And, you know, we we all... Yeah, totally did that. (laughs) Exactly. And what had happened was around my my junior year at Baylor, there was a new lab that opened up, or at least it was my first time hearing about it, which was the Sleep Neuroscience and Cognition Lab, which is run by Michael Scullin. And it was one of those opportunities where, you know, I thought I have awful sleep. Sleep is cool. And, you know, I didn't think too much into it. I was just thinking, this is just very unique. Let me try it. And of course, it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to work in that lab for my last couple of years at Baylor. And it was just absolutely eye-opening in terms of awakening me to how awful my habits are. And the work there primarily focused on sleep and learning and memory and just overall health and wellness when it comes to sleep in college age kids and just much older adults. And when I graduated, I didn't think too much about it. I just thought that was an amazing experience, but wasn't sure how I thought might tie into my future education and my future career. And it wasn't until my post back here, so the one year that I took off after college, where my work consisted of optimizing learning for children. And so I was very interested to hear. So I worked with kids that were as young as like five, six years old to up to high school. And it was interesting that they sounded so much like me in terms of, you know, I don't need sleep. Like I, it was almost as like a bragging kind of thing. Yeah. Like, oh, I, you know, slept for two hours and I'm completely Good. fine. Yeah. And it was, in, it, once it was, you know, I can see a college student probably saying that. But to hear a high schooler, a middle schooler, yeah. even an elementary schooler say that was completely astonishing to me. Mm. And to not, for them to not think that any of that had to do with what they were learning or how they were learning was very interesting to me. And so that really inspired my kind of goal to go into sleep research and be trained to be a sleep researcher. And currently, very fortunately, I'm now in this lab um, with Gina at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst with Rebecca Spencer, where now I can really, really tackle that question. And so my research area and my complete interest and love right now is in early childhood, so specifically between three to five years old, and how sleep is really, in what ways is sleep impacting memory and learning during this really important developmental window is where my focus is at the moment. 
Amazing. Okay. Well, I'm so excited that you both agreed to come on the podcast today because this is obviously a very hot topic for a lot of new parents. And as you mentioned, Tana, especially like, I'm just so like astonished, as you said, flabbergasted. I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm genuinely also a bit scared when younger generations are starting to say, I don't need that much sleep. And this, and this, and and I truly believe this is because this is an inculcated habit of what they've seen their parents probably say the same thing or display similar habits, right? If society says it, it must be normal, right? I don't need this much sleep, but it's very, very key to have a discussion like this because it is so key to have good sleep, right? And so maybe one of the questions I'd really like to ask you guys, let me know who, who wants to answer it, but. Can you tell me why infant sleep research is a little bit younger than adult sleep research? And I wanted to know why that is and why is there such a lack of understanding of pediatric sleep, do you think, in your opinion? And then we'll talk about how pediatric sleep works in comparison to adult sleep, maybe. So who would like to take this question? I think maybe both of us could yeah. chime in with our own thoughts That'd when we have them. I, I suppose, Sana, do you have like, I have some thoughts. I don't know if you had thoughts that you wanted to, to say first or. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Our infant expert can go first and I'll, I'll chime in. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I would say that it's one of the reasons why infant sleep research is probably a, a bit younger in its infancy, no pun intended, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is because it's difficult to study infants in the same way that we study adults. So studying an infant involves putting on polysomnography. So polysomnography is a sleep setup where you have electrodes or little buttons that you put on the head, on the scalp, and that's electroencephalography. And then you also have to put sensors around the eyes and then also around the chin um, to get a good measure of eye movements as well as muscle activity. Hmm. And so to do that with an infant is a fairly difficult and arduous task. And it's, you can't instruct an infant to keep on the sensors that you place on an infant like you can with an adult. With that being said, there was some initial research, I want to say in the 60s, that was conducted taking minimal recordings of infant sleep and looking at how it changed within the first few months of life. And so that has been done from, I would say, like the 1960s onward. But in terms of sample sizes, in terms of being able to follow up longitudinally with the infants, that can be a, a big challenge. And so I think that those are those are probably the main reasons why there's a, a lack of a deep understanding of how pediatric sleep works. So there have been a lot of also parental report studies. There have been a lot of studies um, using Actigraph, which are these little watches that you can put on to measure sleep, but you don't get the same depth of knowledge that you would get from a polysonography study where you get the staging and, and those sorts of things. I will say that there is a wide-scale effort going on currently right now. Oh man, Andre Fenton. So that's the name that I have in my head of one study that's going on where they are trying to track infant sleep patterns globally. Right now, it seems like a lot of westernized countries are are fairly overrepresented in that study, but (laughs) um, just because of the recruitment and the way that, that that goes but they are trying to get on the wide scale, like how infant sleep patterns are changing across the first year through an app where that parents can just 
type in on their smartphones or whatnot. In addition to that, our research, of course, we're doing research using the polysomnograph methods. So that's using polysomnography. We're looking at in depth at the naps in infancy and how that changes longitudinally across uh, the first year. So Mm. Donna, do you have anything to add? Yeah, just a quick thing. And I I completely agree with Gina because it's the biggest hurdle that we have to go through is actually going through the study. And if if I were to add to that, when our goal is to understand the function of sleep, so that obviously comes with not just doing the sleep portion, but it's the learning portion. And what makes that difficult, and I'm sure Gina can attest to this, is that our infants can't talk. And so it's very difficult for us to know what they're feeling when they're feeling it, how they're feeling and what they are thinking and what they want to say. And so we have to create these paradigms that are getting at their thinking and what they've learned through nonverbal communication. And so that also makes it a bit tricky to, to understand and disentangle what, not only what sleep looks like in infancy, but what is sleep doing exactly during this time, which I think can be a bit of a challenge and probably why it's now starting to to gain momentum and kind of had been barren for, for a while. Yeah. Okay. So then maybe we'll let's talk about how does child or infant sleep work? So when newborns come into this world, how does that differ from what we understand as sleep as an adult? What's happening in their brain? Yes, Gina, please tell me. <laughs> This is a great question. And so as I was thinking about this question, I think that the comparative literature can actually help us a little bit in this regard. So infants are smaller than adults are, obviously, and they're changing their bodies and their brains are changing much more rapidly than an adult's body and brain is changing. And so there was a study, a recent study conducted where researchers found that in newborns, their brain growth was one, like it, their brain growth increased by 1% mm. until about three months, like 1% each day, day yeah. immediately after birth until about three months of age. And so if you quantify that, that's going from a brain that's about 33% of adult size early on to a brain that's 55% of adult size by three months of age. And so that's pretty crazy to think that's that fast. that that happens so, so rapidly. And the other thing to mention too, is that in addition to the, to the brain growth and the body growth, that means that their metabolism is also very fast. And so in non-human species, we know that the smaller the animal, the faster the metabolism typically means longer sleep. So if you have a faster metabolism, if you have a smaller body size, then you get more hours of sleep typically on average than a larger animal, slower metabolism. And the other aspect of that is that more frequent sleep bouts are also found to occur more often in smaller animals as well and animals with faster metabolisms. So if you think about like, for example, like a ground squirrel or a hummingbird or something like that, you see a lot of bouts throughout the day and you see a lot of, of hours of sleep. Overall, you look at brown bats. Yeah, there's a lot of different species you can look to for this. But in any case, so I think that that's part of why infants sleep so much initially is just this initial burst of growth and metabolism and energy allocation that has to happen in brain development. And the other thing I think is that the connections to the pineal gland and the connections to like melatonin release early on 
we don't really know how that looks in infancy. We do know that very early on, infants do seem to be able to develop somewhat of a circadian rhythm. So within the first three months of birth or the first 12 weeks, 12 to 16 weeks, we do see infants have this shift from like relatively equal amounts of sleep across the day and night to more sleep across the night, but still some sleep bouts throughout the day. And so we don't really know exactly what's going on with how light influences sleep at this age, but we can imagine that at least at birth, it's somewhat immature and that those connections to the pineal gland are are increasing with this rapid brain development in the first three months. Mm. Okay. And then Sana, could you maybe talk about like the architecture? How does that sort of differ from newborns to adult sleep? So architecture is particularly with kids, and we were talking about this a little earlier, is that they're predominantly just overtaken by stage two sleep and stage three, your slow wave sleep. And so you'll see that almost, there's almost a 50-50 split, maybe like 40-40. You're going to have what is quiet sleep versus active sleep. And so you have that from about birth to around six months of age. So not quite that switch of, or not that quite transition into non-REM sleep and REM sleep, but it's more of that quiet sleep that eventually develops into non-REM sleep and active sleep, which becomes your REM. Versus when you look at adult sleep, it's quite more fragmented as you get older, but you're spending less and less time in those rich, deep stages. So you have overall less of slow wave sleep. You're spending less time in stage two sleep as well. And that's kind of more of that REM versus the the stronger, deeper sleep. So if we can just talk about the stages really quickly. So in babies, do... And so in adult sleep, what we do, maybe we'll compare it from adults. So adults go from stage one to stage two, stage three, and then I guess stage three is now stage three and four is sort of made as stage three, I think now. And then it goes into REM, which is dream sleep. And there's a flow to that, obviously, like each stage has a different period. So stage one is roughly about five to 10 minutes, if I remember. And then it goes into stage two, which is five to 25 minutes ish or is it less maybe i don't know <laughs> no it's more in adults isn't it it's a lot more i'm thinking of children and i and then and then there's dreams at the stage three and stage four sorry rem sleep as well i'm just getting this all confused now guys because i'm thinking of like adult sleep and i'm thinking of kids sleep at the same time in my brain but for an adult this happens and it happens over like 90 minutes to 120 minutes what's the difference in maybe those durations compared for an adult compared to a baby Yeah, so babies cycle, their cycles are are shorter. So if I remember correctly, I think it ranges from 30 to 45 minutes early on in development. And so, yeah, they definitely go through shorter sleep cycles. And so typically for a lot of sleep studies that are looking at naps, if they assign infants to like a wake group where they make them stay awake during their nap versus a nap group, they'll have their cutoff if the infants in the wake group end up falling asleep and taking a nap, (laughs) like if we're not successful at keeping them awake. 
then 30 minutes is typically the cutoff for including them in the weight group because they will have gone through a completed cycle by that point. And so, but as far as in my own sleep scoring, as far as I've seen so far, and granted this is a nine month old infant, so it's a little bit older than first born through six months. So at nine months, the stages are identifiable. So adult like sleep stages are identifiable. And you do see this transition from stage one to stage two to slow wave sleep. There's a lot of slow wave sleep happening during nap time. And then a little blip of stage two before they get into their REM sleep. So similar to adults that go through that one, two, stage three, and then two again, like for a very brief period right before the REM. So in terms of the order, although Sana can probably attest to this as well, that for each individual, the order can vary as well. So that's like the typical is one, two, three, two REM, but it can definitely vary across mm. individuals. <laughs> yeah. So or children, especially. Talk about that. Yeah. And children. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that in children's sauna? Sure. So for children, they have more adult-like cycles. So they'll take about 90 minutes to get through all those stages. And so typically for our nap paradigms, it is if the child gets less than 90 minutes of sleep, we're unable to, to really capture any good thing because they didn't have that complete cycle just yet. What age are we um, talking and- about, Sana, just out of curiosity? Sure. So my focus is primarily three to five years old. Okay. So sometimes we look two years, nine months and just almost six years old. And while they have the 90 minute cycle, what I, in my scoring have typically seen is, you know, we see one to two to three, and it's right around three when they've had a good amount of three that you're going to see back to two, then sometimes back to three, back to two, back to one. So, and, and like Gina said, it's very individual based. So children are just There's just so much individual differences there, but that's typically the trajectory I see from going from one to two to three to two to one. And these naps typically have very little REM sleep. So if a child really goes through those two hour window that we've given them, sometimes we'll get a little blip of REM sleep, but it's, it's very rare. Mm, interesting. Okay. So, cause that's kind of the difference I think, especially in adult sleep and pediatric sleep, because in adult sleep, it's quite cyclic. Like it's very quite standard. I mean, you might get a bit more REM sleep in the earlier parts of the night if you've quite sleep deprived but or, or something, but maybe. But otherwise, you're doing kind of the same cycles of one, two, three, and then REM. But in children, it can bounce around between each of the stages. And if could you maybe in, in case people have not caught the adult sleep episode, I really, really recommend it. But just in case they don't have time to do so, can you talk about what's happening in each stage? in terms for children? Like why is each stage significant and what is happening in stage one, two, or three? And, and Gina, please chime in. I think this might be like a group, <laughs> group chiming in portion. So when we have stage one, that's typically your falling asleep period. So it's of course your lightest stage of sleep. And children and adults as well is when we have these hypnagogic jerks. And so it's really our body getting us ready to get ready to go to sleep. And so we'll have these jerking movements of our arms, sometimes our legs. So we'll see these at least anecdotally from my experience with children. I've definitely seen that with leg kicking quite a bit. And so I, and it also corresponds to when they are in stage one sleep, which is really interesting. And it's when they dip into stage two as you're getting into deeper sleep. So it's harder to wake a child up or anybody up from once they get into stage two and beyond. And for children, they 
especially in naps, it's quite quite a significant amount of their time is spent in stage two. And so you see a lot of these particular sleep markers in stage two, which we call sleep spindles in K-complexes. And these K-complexes are thought to help keep these children asleep. And these sleep spindles have been associated with markers of helping consolidation of learning. Mm. And so as they dip deeper and deeper, so you go from two, you're now going into stage three, which is our deepest sleep. And it is during this stage, which pretty much difficult to wake up a child or anybody really. And it is a lot of my work and our work in general has really honed in on these two sleep stages, stage two and three because of their roles in memory and in learning and just processing in general. So emotional processing, attention, et cetera. Yeah. So I think Sana covered that really well. So stages two and three, we think in our work and in other work as well in other labs, we think that those two stages are particularly important for memory consolidation, at least when it comes to certain types of memories called declarative memories, which is memory for specific events and facts, well as being able to generalize different examples of like items or stimuli to create categories in your mind. So that's especially important for language development. And so, yeah, so during stage two, we have these spindles and K complexes, as Sana said, which we think is supposed to represent this transfer of information from early memory stores in the hippocampus to memory stores in the prefrontal cortex or in other cortical, neocortical areas. One thing I did want to add is that in infancy, at least, so we have this quiet and active sleep distinction early on in infancy, and then you have large amounts of REM very early on, and the REM tends to decrease across the lifespan but you get the most of it in infancy. Right. And part of the reason that we think that is, is because active sleep is this precursor to REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And active sleep is a little different from typical REM sleep because you don't get a complete loss of muscle tone like you do in REM sleep in adults. And so without this loss of muscle tone, infants are having during these REM sleep periods, what we call myclonic twitches, which are twitches of body, Mm -hmm. of limbs and and other parts of the body Yeah, during their sleep. And there's some really interesting research. I'm going to name drop (laughs) Mark Blumberg here. So there's some really interesting research by Mark Blumberg and colleagues indicating that these myclonic twitches that happen during REM are allowing infants to build these body maps, maps of their bodies that they can use for further motor development, both gross and fine motor development. Um, And so it's really interesting to think about why infants are getting so much REM sleep at this age and active sleep and how REM and active sleep differs in infancy as compared to early childhood and adulthood. So then do the active sleep and and quiet sleep sort of change in in terms of duration as the child gets older as well? So it becomes more active, less active and more quiet? What? For those who are who are watching and listening, well, those who are listening, if you want to catch the visual, please tune into the video episode. 
So this figure here that we can see, so this is an amalgamation of a lot of different studies, some of which were conducted very early on in infant sleep research, so in the 80s. <laughs> but it, we, we took whatever polysomnography information we could gather from studies up to this date. And what you are seeing is that quiet sleep does tend to increase across from newborn to five months. And so quiet sleep is the precursor to the non-REM sleep stages. So stage one, stage two, and stage three. Whereas active sleep is the REM sleep. And you get most of it when you're a newborn. And then that tends to decrease as you get to five months of age. And then you also have what's called undefined sleep. So even given that we've made it easier for ourselves to score infant sleep from newborn to five months, there's still a lot of sleep that just sits in between this right. active and quiet sleep that we call undefined sleep because we can't reliably categorize it, unfortunately. Okay. But as, as stages start to become more structured, so by around six months. It's looking quite 50-50 in the beginning newborns, and then it starts to increase and decrease essentially. Is that right? Indeed. So yeah, it is split about 50-50 starting as a newborn and then the quiet sleep starts to increase relative to the active sleep. And then you see that from like the, throughout the rest of the lifespan, basically, you see an increase. So slow wave sleep is especially prominent up until the preschool age when you see this big increase in stage two. Mm. And then REM sleep sort of just kind of stays the same. But then there are some studies so that aren't represented here that indicate that REM sleep is actually decreasing somewhat at this age as well. Right. But yeah, so that's about what we know so far about how stages are changing yeah. uh, across infancy and early childhood. That's amazing because then it basically then goes to show that, I mean, children will change obviously their sleep and they will progress at some point to an adult sleep cycle, which is roughly around the fifth year mark-ish, right? Like when they're five years old. Is that right, Sana? That they start changing? Yes, Gina, yeah, about five years old. Yeah, that they'll start to have adult sleep cycles, but it's very normal for them to have these changes constantly sort of every you know couple of months or every couple of years where their sleep is going to change in terms of their weight gains and their <laughs> their ability to fall asleep and things like that for some time and it's probably going to be usually around the fifth year where you can see a definitely distinction that you can say like this is like very typically like an adult sleep person's type of sleep in that that makes sense because my, my main point of this question is that I want adults to understand that you cannot expect your child to sleep like you because it just doesn't make sense until the age of five. Yeah. Sleep is changing Absolutely. so much. And even I, I want to put a caveat in there even too, that even after age five, it there is some cultural variation in when the nap is dropped and individual variation as well. So even after five years, you may continue to have midday naps throughout childhood. But typically, at least in the U.S., where we study our infants around the age of five is when most children, sorry, they're not infants anymore at yeah. five years of age, but most children will have moved out of their, their midday nap. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cause then that's the other thing is that if there usually is a midday nap, does that mean that you, I mean, for those children, possibly their bedtime has gotten a bit later because do babies have, so this is kind of moving into another question, which I don't even know which question we're on. So let's ignore that for a second. But babies typically have like a 12 hour day and 12 hour night periods. Is this right? Yes, because I think a lot, you know, 
because we live in a very 24-hour type of culture society here in Asia, typically a lot of adults do think that, oh, babies can last to an adult bedtime. An adult bedtime is anywhere past 9, 10 p.m., 11 p.m., right, at night, past midnight sometimes as well, because we are in a quite a very 24-hour society. And it's very, sometimes when I talk to clients and I say, oh, babies are on a 12-hour schedule, they're completely like, am I talking nonsense? Is this right? <laughs> because, and how long does this 12 hour sort of day range last? And when does it change? When does it start to change where the night is actually a little bit shorter and the day is a bit longer, like 14 hours and 10 hours instead of 12, 12, for example. Do you have any insight on this? Yeah. So I would say for, at the beginning, so early, early on in infancy, usually the range is like 14 to 20 hours of sleep. So this is one other thing to say is that general sleep durations in infancy, there is a lot of individual variability in that. And that could be in part culturally determined, that could be in part biologically determined. There's like a 10 hour confidence interval range between infants in terms of like how long they're sleeping for. But I would say that, yeah, I would say your 12 hour estimate is pretty good up until, I mean, I would say early childhood, you're getting into about 10 hours and then into adolescence, you're getting into about nine hour sleep periods. But yeah, in terms of the allocation of that sleep across sleep bouts, Early on, as I mentioned, at three months, you're getting this shift into more sleep allocated in the night than in the day. Although you are still getting night waking, still getting plenty of night wakings <laughs> up until even like 12 months, even up until 15 months. So you could still have an infant or a toddler that is having these wake periods or, or, or sleep that's divided in the night. But yeah, often their nighttime sleep is longer than their daytime sleep out starting very early. Mm. Asana, I'm sorry, did you want to add something to You're totally fine. So just to piggyback off of that, I would say that this assessment of 12-hour day, 12-hour night is pretty accurate, especially if we're talking about early childhood, because we talk about this 24-hour sleep need. So in the entire day, at least for a three- to five-year-old or a toddler, they'll need about 10 to 13 hours of total sleep. So whether that's allocated part in the day, so if that midday nap contributes to that 10 to 13 they need, but yes, once in, they're out of that infancy stage, they are just creating this larger, more concise, consolidated sleep overnight. But you do have that fraction of 12 hour and 12 hours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's good because I think it's really important for parents to understand that 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night is something that needs to kind of, it usually is quite prominent for children that, I mean, even at five-year-olds still kind of really need that. As, as you were saying, about 10 to 13 hours of sleep somewhere distributed during the day, whether it's still napping or whether it's all consolidated at night, it's still that amount of time. So if a child is not napping, we're still talking about at least a good 10 hours or 11 hours, 10 to 13 hours of sleep roughly in the nights, right? So it's a very important point. So I think we just touched on it very, very lightly, but let's talk about wake-ups at night. <laughs> why do children wake up at night? And why is it that they will continue to wake up until 12 months, you think? Well, yeah, not you think, but what, what does the research say? <laughs> Yeah, I would say even even longer, unfortunately. So so I'm looking at a paper right now. It's a review from, it's a 2012 review by Barbara Galland. And she has a figure in her review that has this, 
<laughs> night wakings on the y-axis and age in months on the x-axis and it goes out to 24 months because at two years you may still have a child yeah. that wakes up in the middle of the night even with young children so preschool age children that we're studying from three to five you do have what we call curtain callers who mm. will wake up in the middle of the night you know grab the parents and then hop into bed with the parents and so you'll have like this bed sharing phenomenon where they may start in their own bed but then move into the parents bed in the middle of the night so during infancy there's a lot of reasons why an infant can wake up in the middle of the night early on of course a prominent reason for waking up is feeding because infant stomachs are so small and they have this really fast metabolism they're developing very rapidly they need to feed very frequently so two to four hours intervals of feeding. But then as they're getting older and it stops being a little bit more about feeding, it could be a sleep transition. So infants, when they transition (laughs) into REM sleep, for example, they may have an arousal and wake up very briefly during that period. And so, so definitely sleep transitions could play a role in that. And so one thing that I know I've talked about with folks before is that you don't want to immediately rush to a baby's side if the baby wakes up because they could soothe themselves back to sleep quickly. If you wait like about five to 10 minutes, you may see the infant go back to sleep on their own. But if they are, you know, having like a major disturbance in their sleep, if they're definitely awake, you may want to go in. There are different strategies for how to intervene in that instance or whatnot and to check on them and see if they, if they are hungry or if they need changed or if there's something else going on. But definitely there are lots of general biological reasons why a baby could wake up in the middle of the night that don't have to do with calling for the parent. And yes, in early childhood, it's interesting. I don't know if Sonia, you want to talk about early childhood at all in that regard or? Yeah, just a couple. So what came immediately to mind were two things. One of them Gina had mentioned, which was these sleep transitions. They're just it's a very unique time in their own sleep where, you know, if you're going from infancy and let's say you're going straight to toddlerhood, you're getting that more consolidated bout, but it's also this change in sleep hygiene or sleep routine almost where you might not exactly be, you know, in a crib, but maybe transitioning to your own bed. But something that came to mind was, especially in toddlerhood is teething because teething can be, especially those molars, it's going to get a child up in the middle of the night and, You know, there's also, you know, I'm thinking about this is kind of also a time where I see parents trying to, it's great that parents try to do this early on with infants, which is trying to have them sleep on their own. But I think that, you know, we see this much more in toddlerhood and early childhood is trying to get the child in their own bed to be more, you know, self-soothing. And I think that can, you know, any interruptions in that night can cause awakenings that can just vary in length as well. Right. So when do, do you think that feeding is no longer the reason for the night waking? Because obviously most people, right, not even forget my clients, my parents, my mother, even if my kid is now three years old, even if she has a night waking, she'd be like, she's hungry. Like she's three. <laughs> she dropped feeding at six months. <laughs> no, 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 but she must be hungry. Let's give her milk. I'm like, no. So when does the digestive system or the metabolism change where it's no longer a feed-related thing, but it might be a transitional thing or 
you know, a slight arousal from, you know, the sleep stages and, and these transition points. I've heard a couple of different estimates on this, actually. So it's difficult to say, but I know for sure by a year, by 12 months, it's probably typically not about eating so much or as much. And especially like with introductions of solid foods and things like that, and that can happen earlier on as well. So along with this transition in teething, I feel like there are differences there, but it also depends, I think, on like breastfeeding versus formula feeding and how with breastfeeding, you're going to get more night awakenings than you will with formula feeding. But yeah, it's a difficult question. And I, I don't want to say any solid, Definitive, I don't want to yeah. give a solid What's the number range? here. So like 12 months is the latest. What's the earliest that you've heard of? Honestly, 12 months is about like the time that I've heard of that's like the solid. Yeah, I haven't heard of earlier than 12 months. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen know. it earlier um, than 12 months, you, but yes. <laughs> yeah, have you have you heard of earlier that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't feel comfortable saying any earlier than 12 months, but I know that definitely changes in feeding patterns are happening for sure earlier than that. I do want to say that not all wakings earlier than 12 months will be because of feeding. Okay. So that's one thing to say is so that maybe, not all wakings yeah, will be feed related. So yeah. maybe how, in terms of transitions, when do these transition starts taking place maybe so that these parents can start being like oh if i'm gonna feed maybe i can wait a bit because this is probably the age that my baby's starting to learn these transition type of things in sleep so when does that start i would say probably around six months that would be my estimate for that yeah yeah Mm. i don't know sana if you have any insights into that as well or yeah. No, I, I, that's your guess is as good as mine, or your not guess, you're educated input. Yeah, yeah. But I would say probably somewhere between four and six months would be my guess for that when sleep transitions are starting to occur. And that's occurring also with this change in between active and quiet sleep transitioning into REM, into proper REM sleep that you would see like transition related. How many transitions typically are there in the night, do you think, for infant sleep? And are some differ in length? I would probably also put that around six months. Okay. I would say three months is where you're changing your circadian pattern to having longer overnight nap outs. So I will say that, or overnight sleep outs. So I will say that like 12 weeks, 12 to 16 weeks, that's definitely when you're starting to see like this change in this shift in overall sleep durations from the early period or from the daytime period to the night period. But yeah, I would say like in terms of specific stage transitions, yeah, we wouldn't be able to properly identify that until around six months. This is part of the problem too, that it might just be because of our measurement methods. Mm. So that's like another issue is that it might just be because of our limitations in terms terms of being able to identify these sleep stages. And so it could be a circular that we're recommending this particular age because it's the only time that we can see these changes happening. But there could be microstructural changes that we're not picking up on with polysomnography as well. So right. that's another thing that could be, <laughs> could be, <laughs> could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, then let's talk about napping because we'll first talk a little bit about the importance. I mean, you touched upon the importance of the nap, but like If children don't nap, what do you think is, or what is the research science show that are the implications or the negative effects if not napping? Yes, yes, the juicy bits. Oh gosh, where to start? (laughs) This long list, sorry. (laughs) We just, I could just give you a list. In summary, I will say first and foremost, we, we all believe this, I know, 
headstrongly is that sleep is pretty indispensable. And I'd say that's very, very much the case in infancy and early childhood, because just coming from an early childhood background now, it's that it's a significant time of growth that is not just physical and it's not just, you know, cognitively, but it's also emotionally and socially for a child. And so naps have been shown to benefit all these areas in a child's growth and development. And work has shown that compromising on the nap can have very immediate and long-term implications in that growth. And just the consequences are not ideal. We know just anecdotally, we know that if we deprive a child of a nap, just a two hour nap, the mood, the just the reception that we get from them is a complete 180. And if you do that chronically, if you just deprive a child of a nap for who knows how long, it can definitely have consequences on both their learning and memory, but their just emotional, social, and physical development. And so what is the latest time for a nap? Because I mean, a nap could be anywhere between 12 in the day to 4.30 in the afternoon. Very true. So that is really what our work tries to kind of hone in on, among other things, is what is this optimal time period and how like how long should it be? When should it be? And so in terms of timing, at least for our studies, we've Typically, and I can speaking from my own, but we start around 11.30 or noon-ish, early afternoon. Uh, we try to get that nap in, uh, typically an hour before the child's usual nap time. And then we give them a two-hour opportunity to nap. And so, you know, the, there are no formal recommendations around napping. And so that's also something we're trying to hit here, which is how much is just right mm. for them to consolidate everything they've learned up to this point. Mm. And so we suggest it's a two hour opportunity. And that doesn't mean that they have to be asleep all those two hours. Oh, okay. But it, it gives them a window to get as much as possible because that two hour allows them to get at least maybe one, potentially one and a half cycles of deep sleep and of full cycles that they might need. So we suggest two hours. I know in infancy work, the window is broader, but Gina can speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. So in infancy, I'll talk about the research that we're doing in the nine-month-olds through 15-month-olds because at that age range, so from around six to nine months, infants are starting to transition from overall polyphasic sleep. So taking like three naps a day or like multiple naps a day to taking two naps a day. And then further on from around 15 to 18 months, they're transitioning to taking this one nap a day that they maintain through the preschool age until around three to five years old. And so one thing that our research has shown for nine month olds, at least, is that when infants are deprived of their typical morning nap, so typically at nine months, they'll take a morning nap and an afternoon nap. And the timing of those naps can range depending on how long the morning nap is, how late their overnight sleep is. And so if their morning nap is longer, they tend to stay awake for a longer interval until their afternoon nap. But all of that said, when infants are habitually taking two naps a day and they're deprived of that morning nap, you get a small decrease in memory in their ability to remember toys that we showed them earlier in the morning. 
And then in the afternoon, we let them take their afternoon nap as normal, even though we kept them awake for the morning nap. And in the afternoon, what happens is that even though they're allowed to take their afternoon nap as normal, their memory, if they don't take that morning nap, decreases across the afternoon nap interval as well. And so it seems like that afternoon nap isn't able to protect memories that they learn in the afternoon, and it's not able to compensate for that nap that they lost in the morning. Mm. Another thing that we've found is that skipping that morning nap also changes the, or not significantly at, at this point, but it seems to alter somewhat the structure of the afternoon nap, such that the afternoon nap is somewhat shorter than it mm. would be if they had taken a morning nap. So it's interesting because if they take a nap in the morning and then a nap in the afternoon, their afternoon nap tends to be longer than if they skip a nap in the morning and then nap in the afternoon, which when we went into this initially, we didn't really have a hypothesis either way. We thought, you know, maybe if they skip their morning nap, they'll be so tired that they'll take a longer afternoon nap, but that is not the case. (laughs) And so if infants are in this habitual structure, skipping that morning nap at that age is going to negatively affect their ability to learn and retain memories across the day. With that being said, preliminary evidence is showing that at later ages, at 12 and 15 months, when they're starting to transition out of that morning nap, skipping a morning nap doesn't have the same negative effects on memory as it does nine months. And so it really does depend on the age of the infant. And then that again speaks to this idea that it's a time of rapid change in the first year, especially it's a time of rapid change in sleep and in the requirements for daytime napping. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yes. Cause I think, I mean, this might be a question for something else, but like, why is it, do you think that they don't sleep as long for their second nap if they didn't have the morning nap? So there is this idea of overtiredness in the literature. Mm -hmm. There is this idea of that. There isn't a lot of research done on that in infancy because I think our study is one of the first studies to keep infants awake during a period when they would normally be napping. I think in part because maybe other researchers were a little scared to do that. I don't know. But yeah, so our lab is one of the first to keep them awake during a period when they would be napping. Typically, other studies, what they've done is they've tested infants during a different time when they would normally be awake anyway, if they're trying to assess memory benefits of like taking a nap versus staying awake. But for us, we're actually taking away one of the infant's naps for that day. And so, yeah, I think there is this idea of overtiredness. I'm not sure in terms of the physiological mechanisms, and I don't know if anybody really is for infants at this point, what the physiological mechanisms of overtiredness are in terms of whether that's increased norepinephrine, whether that or increased cortisol, whether that's causing them to stay awake or not. We don't know. And I don't have any measures of hormones in my Mm. study, unfortunately, but it would be something that I would like to do in the future for sure. Yeah, I think that'd be very interesting because we t- can we talk about overtiredness maybe in terms of like, what does it look like? Maybe let's start with Sana. Let, tell me what does it look like for, for toddlers? Like, because most people kind of wait until their toddlers are just sleepy, like adults to put them to bed. Yeah. And what is actually 
sleepy and then overtiredness for toddlers? When should they be putting them to bed? What signs? Yeah, so aside from along, actually, I should say along with them being just tired, acting tired, or there is something that should be noted about their daytime behavior. So it would be whether they are just inattentive. So they're not very aware or cognizant of the tasks that they're doing, that they are hyperactive. So sometimes when a child is too tired, they just get wired up. And so it's actually really hard to put some children down when they're actually very tired because they're in a wired state. You can see children being incredibly moody, cranky, grumpy, just throwing tantrums. These three, four things that I've noted are actually just complete signs of a child being sleep deprived, overtired. And it does manifest in different ways because sometimes you'll see it just being very bogged down, no motivation whatsoever versus being incredibly hyperactive. And so it's, again, those individual differences in these children. And it's really parents being aware of these changes in their child's behavior, daytime behavior specifically. Mm, Okay, yeah. And then Gina, do you see any for kids, for babies from nine to 15 months? Really interesting. So this is definitely an area of individual variability. So we were discussing this at a lab meeting the other day how in the infant sample in particular, we have some infants who are cranky, are upset, angry. They want to throw the toys away. <laughs> they, you know, they're rubbing their eyes. They're seeking out feeding behaviors such as that. But then we also have other infants who are not angry. They're just sleepy. So mm. I had one infant who was staring at me when I was giving him a toy to play with. He would just stare like blankly at me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very sad. But wasn't, you know, wasn't crying, wasn't angry, just would stare at the toy, wouldn't touch it, <laughs> would just look at me. Looked like he was about to fall asleep on the table, honestly. Yeah. And then we have other infants who are absolutely happy to be awake and they're, you know, bouncing off the walls, crawling around, giggling and, you know, you know, very loud laughing. It's a really interesting mix. And the reasons for that individual variation are very interesting. I would love to study that further. So it's definitely something I'd like to do. I mean, it would be so interesting because obviously, as you said, you guys are one of the labs in the US that is studying sleep. Like out of curiosity, because you talked about this with me, what are the other studies that are going on regarding infant and sleep? Just for people to know that, you know, there's so many, obviously, sleep places, uh, sleep research centers, but they're studying so many different aspects. And could you just tell me what are the topics that are being covered, really, that's quite popular amongst your field? Yeah, so honestly, the biggest topic that I think is being covered in the infant sleep world currently is infant napping or overnight sleep and memory. So those are that's really what's being studied most of all. And a lot of the studies that I've seen come out in recent years is looking at daytime napping in infancy. And often it's really difficult because the age ranges vary quite a bit. So I've seen some studies done in three-month-olds even, and I've seen studies done in nine and 16-month-olds. I've seen studies done in 14 and 16-month-olds as well. But they're looking at things such as, or topics such as how sleep aids with memory for specific words versus overall grammatical structure of language. 
So a lot of language development related to napping and how napping aids that. There have been a few studies looking at napping and motor development. There's actually not a lot of research on napping and its acute effects on infant emotional memory or emotional reactivity, which is really interesting because you would think that would be one of the first things that would be studied. But anecdotally, I suppose, maybe people think that, or maybe researchers think that that's something that's too easy or that's something that is intuitive somehow that, you know, we all know that infants get cranky when they (laughs) skip a nap. But that may not be the case. And understanding why there's individual variability in that is would be of great interest, I think, for parents and for researchers. So, mm. yeah, so I wonder, it's, it's very much been focused on cognitive memory consolidation and learning and language learning in particular, and less focused on emotional development. Motor development, I will say, has gotten some attention from, as I mentioned before, Mark Blumberg, as well as Sarah Berger at New York University, I believe, is where she is. Those two researchers have really started increasing interest in how sleep, in particular, aids motor memory and motor development. So then maybe we can then finally just talk about if children aren't sleeping, right? Like if babies, what does sleep deprivation sort of look like? Do you have enough research or have you seen enough of like what you have seen as sleep deprivation and what does that look like for the age ranges that you are working with? Yeah. So as I mentioned, the only study we're doing with sleep deprivation or sleep restricting infants from taking one of their naps. And yeah, as I mentioned, there's a lot of individual variability in how they react to that, but it does seem at least at nine months of age, it does seem to interfere with their memory consolidation at that age. I'm trying to think of, I, I mean, I know that there is infant sleep apnea. I know that is something that occurs in infancy. It's not something that our lab widely studies. I'm sure there are clinical researchers out there who are studying that, and I'm sure it's super interesting. But yeah, I can't really comment much more on it. <laughs> mm, yeah, no. Sana, have you got any any insight on this? So it, it's similar to Gina. I think my experience, what I've seen in the lab and just anecdotally from myself, and it's a lot of what I'd mentioned before of the crankiness and the moodiness. But in terms of... me manipulating that in any way besides keeping a child awake (laughs) at least on my end quite limited unfortunately but something I do hear often is that parents want to abandon the nap to keep you know there is the fussiness sometimes the child is overtired but they're afraid to to give that nap because they are afraid that it's going to impede on their overnight sleep And so from that perspective, and that's actually something that's gotten me excited about the work, I hope to take my work in the future and just my thesis, but I'm going way off track. But I think as something I was thinking about while preparing for this a bit is that I think before we abandon the nap, if families can try to make adjustments in the child's sleep schedule first. So oftentimes these children are taking really late naps. So like you mentioned, sometimes these naps are taken at 3, 4 p.m. Exactly. I've even seen some naps. So from the app to watches, I've seen so many kids taking naps from like 3 to 4, 4 to 5. And then they sleep two hours later, you know, at 
whenever bedtime is. And I think if parents can maybe bump that up. So if you are taking naps later in the afternoon, maybe trying to push them up earlier so that their children have a longer active period before bedtime. And so you have an you know, Gina mentioned this earlier, this sleep pressure and having like enough of that by the time it's it's time to go down. So just a thought. And that has nothing really to do with the <laughs> overtiredness that you were talking about earlier, but in a roundabout way a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, because so I'll give it in my own child's perspective, right? So she technically has dropped nap just very recently. We finally did it when it was like a week or two before her third birthday. And because she was always fighting the nap, no, so we would put her in and then for like about an hour, she'd just be like, I'm not sleepy. <laughs> and just like telling us off and we're like, please just lie down. It's like, and I was just like, at least some darkness will help her relax. Even if she doesn't sleep, some darkness would be good. Even if she's chilling and she was just like, no, I'm not sleepy. Take me out. <laughs> like, I'm lucky that she actually can communicate at this age, you know, like she literally can tell us. But we have also had days where because she's getting used to her new thing of staying awake, that there will be like, on a Saturday, suddenly that's the day she wants to have the nap and she needs to go down for that good hour. But it's coming at like 3.30, sometimes 4 o'clock in the day till 5. But that at least gives us some, you know, she gets a little bit of rest. And then that means obviously bedtime that day is going to be pushed to 8.30, perhaps, or sometimes 9. And I, you know, at, for, for us in my vocation, usually that means that, you know, we're sort of eating into night sleep. Of course, for parents that really need those schedules to work because of XYZ arrangements now with COVID, everyone at home, blah, blah, blah. They rather just ask the nap and just go straight to an earlier bedtime and then get that consolidated night sleep. And I gravitate. I have to admit, I do gravitate. So I still allow her to nap if she does really look like she needs it. And then, of course, there are like four or five days where, you know, the whole week of school, she just she powers through. Of course, we can see there's a little bit of overtiredness with the hyperness, but we get her down and, and she she sleeps through. Right. So in terms of a chronic episode of this, if this keeps going, do you think there is any adverse effect if the parents do decide to consolidate the night? sleep instead because the nap is just happening so late in the day or is it better to just have that late nap and then have the later bedtime because the child is either usually the reason the nap is usually dropped is because the child is just <laughs> screaming in the cot and then it's not sleeping for the entire time and so the parents just going well either I push it so late that then my bedtime gets late which is fine I mean if that has to be it that has to be it but otherwise we can't get enough sleep pressure so I don't know if there's no obviously no answer because you'd have to like study this, <laughs> but in, in, your, in your opinion. So this is such an important and timely question, I'll say. Number one, because there is some research and this is between individuals, so between infants. There's some research to suggest that extended durations of nighttime sleep relates to better cognitive development later. But that is between infants, and it's hard to say whether those infants naturally transitioned out of the nap or whether the reasons for the transition were due to parent schedules or something similar to that. That's actually one of the number one difficulties that we have in research in general, whether these sleep opportunities are taken because of sleep need or whether it's due to scheduling differences. <laughs> so yeah, so it's a really hard question. But with that being said, one thing, and I don't know, 
Sana, I don't know if we are allowed to talk about this or not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm just going to take the chance and talk about it. And hopefully our advisor won't get upset. But there's I'm a very small running... fry. <laughs> <laughs> we are running a study right now where we're looking at the effects of COVID-19 and the lockdowns and restrictions on sleep schedules in children, in preschool age children. Mm. And one thing that we are seeing is that even though children are getting more sleep over like from pre-pandemic to post shutdowns or post the lockdowns, there a lot of them are, are not taking a nap anymore. Yeah. So we started with like 11 children taking a nap and then it ended up that we had only four children continuing to take a nap once they were staying at home. But in spite of that, they're getting more sleep overall. And so it's interesting to think that they're transitioning into just taking this overnight sleep out, but the overnight sleep in doing so, they're getting longer sleep than they would be if they were taking that midday nap. Mm. So yeah, it's interesting. And we don't know what the what the memory implications of that are, or what the cognitive implications of that are. It's just a trend that we're noticing in our data so far. Very preliminary, not publishable ready yeah. yet. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> something yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah. We're hoping to write up and publish our findings, or we're hoping to write up our findings by late December. Mm. And so hopefully we're going to work on that a little bit. I wonder but, if yeah. sunlight then plays a part into that, really. Like exposure to sunlight actually is quite a key reason for some of this. This is one recommendation that my, and this is one reason why we're doing the light exposure study in infancy. There is a recommendation by some pediatricians to make sure that daytime sleep isn't being done just because it's a somnific environment. So that it's not being done just because it's dark in the room or whatnot. So that there has to be enough sleep pressure for that child in order for them to be sleeping it, regardless of whether the environment itself is super conducive to sleeping. And so some pediatricians do recommend keeping the lights, not, not like keeping like a bright light on or anything like that, but having the window, having the blinds open so that natural light can come in during a nap period or, you know, not blacking out the curtains or whatnot, just so the child can take the nap for as long as they need to physiologically but that they're not induced to sleep for longer periods because of this like darkened environment or whatnot. No, that's really interesting because yeah, I, I would say from obviously our own exposure for clients, we've seen the opposite. Obviously, if there is good environments that the longer naps do translate to happier babies in that sense. So less crankier, much more re well rested, waking up, no crying, just really chilling, happy to wait until someone comes and picks them up kind of thing. So we would be great data points, I think, if you ever guys wanted to research, you should definitely get in touch with us because we've seen quite a number of babies. So that should be uh, something that might be good for future research. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so do you have any best practices that you would like to share with parents or your different age groups that you cover anyway, some best practices, maybe just like top three or five best practices for parents? I would say, at least for me, I, I think it's important to avoid overstimulating uh, your child before bed to so doing any sort of overstimulating activities prior to bedtime. So any intense exercises or just anything too exciting. Exercise is what comes to mind first. 
But I think also, so I know a lot of parents try to incorporate a nightly routine. And oftentimes they can be confronted with some, I guess, affirmatives from their child. So they're just adamant to not going to bed. And something that might help with that is incorporating the child into the routine. So giving them some power over what their nighttime routine looks like. So that could be from anywhere picking their pajamas that they wear to sleep. It could be books that they read right before bed can be really helpful. Also to just keep your child in a dimly lit room with temperatures pretty cool, so not freezing, obviously, but there's optimum temperatures, so not too hot, not too cold. So I would, again, when I say dim light, it doesn't have to be a dark room by any means. As long as, you know, they can have a night light anywhere that they need, as long as that light is not directly going into their eyes, that would be just fine. But I would say not overstimulating your child before bedtime, giving them some autonomy with their bedtime routines can be helpful and make them excited about getting ready and going to bed. And then keeping them in a dark, cool room would be really helpful. I agree with infancy as well, that predictability and having a sleep routine is helpful, can be really helpful. And that can look different for different families. I have had a lot of different parents who, who you know, need white noise for their infant. So they'll have white noise in the room with their infant. They'll start with a dim light for their infant. Some do feed their infants shortly before sleep. And so, yeah, I think it differs between infants, but I also know that there's, you know, I would say follow your pediatrician's recommendations as well when it comes to different sleep difficulties. And I know that there's a lot of literature out there, and this is probably just common knowledge for parents, but making sure that the sleep surface that the infant is sleeping on is not, doesn't have a lot of toys or other blankets or things like that, nothing that can cover their face. You know, you want to watch the positionality of your infant, especially very early on in infancy. So making sure they're supine, but also not always supine uh, so that (laughs) to avoid differences in cranial development. (laughs) I know there's a certain condition, I forget what it's called, but yeah, yeah, making sure that you don't have, yeah, the cranial difficulties and the difficulties with head development. But yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of different recommendations that are pretty much just common knowledge across pediatricians that I would say just follow your pediatrician's advice in a lot of those respects. Hmm. Okay. And then just to maybe like end off this wonderful conversation, what is the shift that you want to create with the work that you're doing? Sure. So I, it's, you know, as a more translational piece, it would be great to have the work that I do. So this role that biphasic sleep, so that the naps and overnight sleep, what they play in terms of learning memory, but all forms of development for children. And as a policy piece, hopefully that can change paradigms for preschools and just early education curriculums. Because right now what we're seeing is that nap times, I don't know how long they used to be, but what we're seeing now are just shorter, shorter periods that are dedicated, not just, it's not even nap time, it's quiet time. There's a significant difference between the two because quiet doesn't necessarily mean sleep. Mm. That could just be quiet activities, reading, coloring. And if what's happening more and more is that we're fitting so much into the early education curriculum, which is great for parents and educators. It sounds like a a great opportunity because children are sponges at that time and they just can take on so much more. But 
hopefully what my work and others and our lab's work kind of moves towards suggesting is that we may be actually doing a disservice to our children by taking away an opportunity that may actually check and enhance their learning. And so hopefully my work and of course the work of our labs will hopefully shift policy in that direction. That's a really important point. So Sana's points are really important in the sense that we do have children from all different types of backgrounds, but some who are unfortunately in households where the environment is chaotic or they aren't able to get what you would call like typical sleep overnight. And so in the preschools, having that nap opportunity may be able to aid those children to be able to at least compensate somewhat for the loss of sleep and that they're getting in in a home environment if there's disturbances in the home environment. So so I think that, yeah, like the nap opportunity in preschools is definitely important. And being able to conduct research to determine its relative importance across individuals who may be at a disadvantage versus not, I think that that's an important implication of our work. For the infant side of the research, I think just being able to contribute to a general characterization of what's happening in sleep across infant development is really important to me because I think that there still isn't a very good understanding and there's still like ongoing research trying to be conducted across the world looking at how infants transition, how their sleep transitions across the first year and just being able to contribute to that and being able to provide recommendations for parents, for pediatricians and for daycare centers in terms of best practices for sleep and infancy. I think that that's really important. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I agree. Because I think the more that we at least know, the better informed choices that we can make as parents and as the generations go forward. So But yes, no, thank you so much, ladies. I think that's going to be quite a lot of information for parents to take for today. So I really thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. And I can't wait to have another conversation down the road about something else about pediatric sleep and the latest research that you've come up with. Thank you. Thanks so much, much, Shubra. Thanks for giving us this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. My (laughs) pleasure. I'm so glad that you could do it as well. Mm -hmm.